crowd and someone yelled fire when there was no fire. He was acquainted with grief from depression. He was acquainted with grief from debilitating gout. He died in 1892 at just 57 years of age. But the sermon I'm going to deliver to you tonight is one he preached called Special Thanksgiving to the Father. It was preached by Spurgeon at the New Park Street Church in London on Sunday evening, January 15th, 1860, 163 years ago. It's a sermon where Spurgeon points out that our thanksgiving can tend to go to the Son, to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to the Spirit. But less often, he says, does our thanksgiving go to the Father. And Spurgeon preaches to remedy that. And he does so in a way that's typical of Puritan preaching. Spurgeon wasn't a Puritan, but he was certainly influenced by them. He takes just one verse, as we're going to do in this sermon, and he expounds on it. The verse is going to be on the screen, Colossians 1, 12 to 13, from the version that Spurgeon would have preached from, the King James Version. This sermon isn't really a sermon on Colossians 1, 12 and 13. We're not going to get a sense of the context around these verses or a sense of what's going on in Colossae, but it's a great topical sermon that springs from these verses. It's one that I pray is going to convict you, one that I pray will build you up. So let me commit our time to the Lord in prayer and we'll be built up by our brother, Charles Spurgeon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your servants, like Abel, though dead, are still able to speak because the words that we're recalling tonight are the words of life. They're from uh, an exposition of the scriptures where we hear the voice of Christ. So would you please use this old sermon for the good of our souls May you be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 1, 12 and 13 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. This passage is a mine of riches. I can anticipate the difficulty in preaching and the regret in concluding we shall experience this evening because we're not able to dig out all the gold which lies in this precious vein. We lack the power to grasp and the time to speak in detail upon that volume of truth which is here condensed into a few short sentences. We are exhorted to give thanks unto the Father. This counsel is at once needful and beneficial. I think, my brethren, we scarcely need to be told to give thanks unto the Son, the remembrance of that bleeding body hanging upon the cross is ever present to our faith. The nails and the spear, his griefs, the anguish of his soul, and his sweat of agony make such tender, touching appeals to our gratitude. These will prevent us always from ceasing our songs and sometimes fire our hearts with rekindling rapture and praise of the man Christ Jesus. Yes, we will bless thee, dearest Lord. Our souls are all on fire. As we survey the wondrous cross, we cannot but shout, Oh, for this love, let rocks and hills their lasting silence break, and all harmonious human tongues the Savior's praises speak. It is in a degree very much the same with the Holy Spirit. I think we are compelled to feel, to feel every day our dependence upon his constant influence. 
He abides with us as a present and personal comforter and counselor. We therefore do praise the spirit of grace who hath made our heart his temple and who works in us all that is gracious, virtuous, and well-pleasing in the sight of God. They imagine that love dwelt in Christ rather than in the Father, and that our salvation is rather due to the Son and the Holy Spirit than to our Father God. But let us not be of the number of the ignorant, but let us receive this truth. We are as much indebted to the Father as to any other person of the sacred three. He as much and as truly loves us as any of the adorable three persons. He is as truly worthy of our highest praise as either the Son or the Holy Spirit. In order to excite your gratitude to God the Father tonight, I propose to speak a little upon this passage as God the Holy Spirit shall enable me. If you will look at the text, you will see two blessings in it. <coughs> the first has regard to the future. It is a meetness for the inheritance of the saints in light. I'll step aside from the sermon to say when Brother Charles says meat or meatness, he's talking about being fit. He's talking about fitness. The second blessing, which must go with the first, for indeed it is the cause of the first, the effective cause, has relation to the past. Here we read of our deliverance from the power of darkness. Let us meditate a little upon each of these blessings, and then in the third place I'll endeavor to show the relation which exists between the two. The first blessing introduced to our notice is this. God the Father has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It is a present blessing. Not a mercy laid up for us in the covenant which we have not yet received, but it is a blessing which every true believer already has in his hand. Those mercies in the covenant of which we have the earnest now while we wait for the full possession are just as rich and just as certain as those which have already been with abundant loving kindness bestowed on us, but still they are not so precious in our enjoyment. The mercy we have in store and in hand is, after all, the main source of our present comfort. And oh, what a blessing this made meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. The true believer is fit for heaven. He is meet to be a partaker of the inheritance. And that now, at this very moment, what does this mean? Does it mean that every believer is perfect? That he is free from sin? No, my brethren, where shall you ever find such perfection in this world? It is not such perfection that is meant, although perfection is implied and assuredly will be given as the result. Far less does this meekness mean that we have a right to eternal life from any doings of our own. We have a fitness for eternal life, a meekness for it, but we have no desert of it. We deserve nothing of God even now in ourselves, but his eternal wrath and his infinite displeasure. What then does it mean? Why, it means just this. We are so far meet that we are accepted in the beloved adopted into the family and fitted by divine approval to dwell with the saints in light. The word translated made us meet may be employed for suitable or I think 
sufficient. He hath made us meet sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Just as we are told by the careful observer that in the acorn there is in embryo every root and every bough and every leaf of the future tree, which only requires to be developed and brought out in their fullness, so in the true believer there is a sufficiency or meetness for the inheritance of the saints in light. All that he requires is not that a new thing should be implanted, but that that which God has put there in the moment of regeneration shall be cherished and nurtured and made to grow and increase till it comes under perfection and he enters into the inheritance of the saints in light. This is, as near as I can give it to you, the exact meaning and literal interpretation of the text as I understand it. But you may say to me, in what sense is this meetness or fitness for eternal life the work of God the Father? Are we already made meat for heaven? How is this the Father's work? Well, look at the text a moment, and I will answer you in three ways. What is heaven? We read, it is an inheritance. Who are fit for an inheritance? Sons. Who makes us sons? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. A son is fitted for an inheritance. The moment the son is born, he's fitted to be an heir. All that is wanted is that he shall grow up and be capable of possession, but he is fit for an inheritance at first. If he were not a son, he could not inherit as an heir. Now, as soon as ever we become sons, we are meet to inherit. There is in us an adoption, a power and a possibility for us to have an inheritance. This is the prerogative of the father to adopt us into his family and to beget us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And do you not see that as adoption is really the meetness for inheritance, it's the father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Again, heaven is an inheritance, but whose inheritance is it? It is an inheritance of the saints. It is not an inheritance of sinners, but of saints, that is, of the holy ones, of those who have been made saints by being sanctified. In the epistle of Jude, you'll see at once who it is that's sanctified. You will observe the moment you fix your eye upon the passage that it is God the Father. In the first verse, you read Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. It is an inheritance for saints. And who are saints? The moment a man believes in Christ, he may know himself to have been truly set apart in the covenant to decree. And he finds consecration, if I may so speak, verified in his own experience. For he has now become a new creature in Christ Jesus, separated from the rest of the world. And then it is manifest and made known that God has taken him to be his son forever. The meekness which I must have in order to enjoy the inheritance of all the saints in light is my becoming a son. God hath made me and all believers sons. Therefore we are meet for the inheritance. So then that meetness has come from the father. You will however observe it is not merely said that heaven is the inheritance of the saints, but it is the, that it is the inheritance of the saints in light. So the saints dwell in light the light of knowledge, 
the light of purity, the light of joy, the light of love, pure and effable love, the light of everything that is glorious and ennobling. There they dwell. And if I am to appear meet for that inheritance, what evidence must I have? I must have light shining into my own soul. But where can I get it? Do I not read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down? Yea, verily, but from whom? From the Spirit? No, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The preparation to enter into the inheritance in light is light, and light comes from the Father of lights. Therefore, my meanness, if I have light in myself, is the work of the Father, and I must give him praise. Do you see then that as there are three words used here, the inheritance of the saints in light, so we have a threefold meetness. We are adopted and made sons. God hath, God hath sanctified us and set us apart. And then again, he hath put light into our hearts. All this, I say, is the work of the Father. And in this sense, we are meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. A few general observations here. Brethren, I am persuaded that if an angel from heaven were to come tonight and single out any one believer from the crowd here assembled, there is not one believer that is unfit to be taken to heaven. You may not be ready to be taken to heaven now. That is to say, if I foresaw that you were going to live... I would tell you, you were unfit to die in a certain sense. But were you to die now in your pew, if you believe in Christ, you are fit for heaven. You have a meetness even now, which would take you there at once without being committed to purgatory for a season. You are even now fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. You have but to gasp out your last breath and you shall be in heaven. And there shall not be one spirit in heaven more fit for heaven than you. Nor one soul more adapted for the place than you are. You shall be just as fitted for its element as those who are nearest to the eternal throne. Ah, this makes the heirs of glory think much of God the Father. When we reflect, my brethren, upon our state by nature and how fit we are to be firebrands in the flames of hell, yet to think that we are this night, at this very moment, if Jehovah willed it, fit this very night to wear the everlasting crown, I say this makes us think gratefully of God the Father. This makes us clap our hands with joy and say, Thanks be unto God the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you not remember the penitent thief? It was but a few minutes before that he had been cursing Christ. I doubt not that he had joined with the other, for it is said, They that were crucified with him reviled him. Not one, but both. They did it. And then a gleam of supernatural glory lit up the face of Christ, and the thief saw and believed. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, This day, though the sun is setting, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. No long preparation required, 
no sweltering and purifying fires, and so it shall be with us. We may have been in Christ Jesus to our own knowledge, but three weeks, or we may have been in him for 10 years, or three score years and 10. The date of our conversion makes no difference in our meekness for heaven in a certain sense. True indeed, the older we grow, the more grace we have tasted, the riper we are becoming, and the fitter to be housed in heaven. But that is in another sense of the word, the spirit's meekness, which he gives. But with regard to that meekness, which the father gives, I repeat, the blade of corn, the blade of gracious wheat that has just appeared above the surface of conviction is as fit to be carried up to heaven as the full-grown corn in the ear. The sanctification wherewith we are sanctified by God the Father is not progressive. It is complete at once. We are now adapted for heaven, now fitted for it, and we shall enter into the joy of our Lord. Into this subject I might have entered more fully, but I have not time. I'm sure I have left some knots untied, and you must untie them if you can yourselves. And let me recommend you to untie them on your knees. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are studied much the best when you are in prayer. The second mercy is a mercy that looks back. We sometimes prefer the mercies that look forward because they unfold such a bright prospect. Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood. But here is a mercy that looks backward, turns its back, as it were, on the heaven of our anticipation and looks back on the gloomy past and the dangers from which we have escaped. Let us read the account of it. Who hath delivered us from the domain of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. This verse is an explanation of the proceeding as we shall have to show in a few minutes. But just now, let us survey this mercy by itself. Ah, my brethren, what a description have we here of what matter of men we used to be. <coughs> we were under the power of darkness. Since I've been musing on this text, I've turned these words over and over in my mind. The power of darkness. It seems to me one of the most awful expressions that man ever attempted to expound. I think I could deliver a discourse from it if God the Spirit helped me, which might make every bone in your body shake. The power of darkness. We all know that there's a moral darkness which exercises its awful spell over the mind of the sinner. Where God is unacknowledged, the mind is void of judgment. Where God is unworshipped, the heart of man becomes a ruin. The chambers of that dilapidated heart are haunted by ghostly fears and degraded superstitions. The dark places of that reprobate mind are tenanted by vile lusts and noxious passion like vermin and reptiles from which in open daylight we turn with disgust. And even natural darkness is tremendous. In the solitary confinement, which is practiced in some of, our, some of our penitentiaries, the very worst results would be produced if the treatment were prolonged. If one of you were to be taken tonight and led into some dark cavern and left there, I can imagine that for a moment, not knowing your fate, you might feel a childlike kind of interest about it. There might be perhaps a laugh 
as you found yourselves in the dark. There might for the moment, from the novelty of the position, be some kind of curiosity excited. There might perhaps be a flush of silly joy. In a little time, you might endeavor to compose yourself to sleep. Possibly you might sleep. But if you should awake and still find yourself down deep in the bowels of the earth, where never a ray of sun or candlelight could reach you, do you know the next feeling that would come over you? It would be a kind of idiotic thoughtlessness. You would find it impossible to control your desperate imagination. Your heart would say, oh God, I am alone, alone, alone in this dark place. How you would cast your eyeballs all around, never catching a gleam of light. Your mind would begin to fail. Your next stage would be one of increasing terror. You would fancy that you saw something, and then you'd cry, ah, I would, I could see something, were it foe or fiend. You would feel the dark sides of your dungeon. You would begin to scribble on the walls like David before Akish. Agitation would cease hold upon you. And if you were kept there much longer, delirium and death would be the consequence. We have heard of many who've been taken from the penitentiary to the lunatic asylum. And the lunacy is produced partly by the solitary confinement and partly by the darkness in which they are placed. The power of darkness literally is something awful. If I had time, I would enlarge upon this subject. We cannot properly describe what the power of darkness is, even in this world. The sinner is plunged into the darkness of his sins, and he sees nothing, and he knows nothing. And let him remain there a little longer. And that joy of curiosity, that hectic joy which he now has in the path of sin, will die away. And there will come over him a spirit of slumber. Sin will make him drowsy. So that he will not hear the voice of the ministry crying to him to escape for his life. Let him continue in it. And it will by and by make him spiritually an idiot. He will become so in sin that common reason will be lost on him. All the arguments that a sensible man will receive will be only wasted on him. Let him go on and he will proceed from bad to worse till he acquires the raving mania of a desperado in sin. And let death step in and the darkness will have produced its full effect. He will come into the delirious madness of hell. Ah, it needs but the power of sin to make a man more truly hideous than human thought can realize or language paint. Oh, the power of darkness. Now, my brethren, all of us were under this power once. It is but a few months, a few weeks with some of you since you were under the power of darkness and of sin. Some of you had only got as far as the curiosity of it. Others had got as far as the sleepiness of it. A good many of you had got as far as the apathy of it. And I do not know, but some of you had almost got to the terror of it. You had so cursed and swore, so yelled ye out your blasphemies that you seemed to be ripening for hell. But praised and blessed be the name of the Father. He has translated you from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. 
Having thus explained this term, the power of darkness, to show you what you were, let us take the next word and hath translated us. What a sharp word this translated is. Now, if you want to have the idea explained, give me your attention while I bring out an amazing instance of a great translation. The children of Israel were in Egypt under taskmasters that oppressed them very sorely and brought them into iron bondage. What did God do for these people? There were two millions of them. He did not temper the tyranny of the tyrant. He did not influence his mind to give them a little more liberty, but he translated his people. He took the whole two millions bodily with a high hand and outstretched arm and led them through the wilderness and translated them into the kingdom of Canaan and there they were settled. What an achievement was that when with their flocks and their herds and their little ones, the whole host of Israel went out of Egypt, crossed the Jordan and came into Canaan. My dear brethren, the whole of it was not equal to the achievement of God's powerful grace when he brings one poor sinner out of the region of sin into the kingdom of holiness and peace. It was easier for God to bring Israel out of Egypt, to split the Red Sea, to make a highway through the pathless wilderness, to drop manna from heaven, to send the whirlwind, to drive out the kings. It was easier for omnipotence to do all this than to translate a man from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. This is the grandest achievement of omnipotence. The sustenance of the whole universe, I do believe, is even less than this. The changing of a bad heart, the subduing of an iron will. But thanks be unto the Father. He has done all that for you and for me. He has brought us out of darkness. He has translated us. He's taken up the old tree that had struck its roots never so deep, taken it up, blessed be God, roots and all, and planted it in a goodly soil. He had to cut the top off. It's true. The high branches of our pride. But the tree has grown better in the dear soil than it ever did before. Who ever heard of moving so huge a plant as a man who has grown 50 years old in sin? Oh, but what wonders hath our father done for us? He has taken the wild leopard of the wood, tamed it into a lamb and purged away its spots. Our blackness was more than skin deep. It went to the center of our hearts. But blessed be his name. He hath washed us white and is still carrying on the divine operation. And he will yet completely deliver us from every stain of sin. And will finally bring us into the kingdom of his dear son. Here then, in the second mercy, we discern from what we were delivered and how we were delivered. God the Father hath translated us. But where are we now? Into what place is the believer brought when he is brought out of the power of darkness? He is brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. Into what other kingdom would the Christian desire to be brought? Brethren, a republic may sound very well in theory, but in spiritual matters, the last thing we want is a republic. We want a kingdom. I love to have Christ, an absolute monarch in the heart. 
I do not want to have a doubt about it. I want to give up all my liberty to him. For I feel that I shall never be free till my self-control is all gone. That I shall never have my will truly free till it is bound in the golden fetters of his sweet love. We are brought into a kingdom. He is Lord and sovereign, and he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign with him. The proof that we are in this kingdom must consist in our obedience to our king. Here, perhaps, we may raise many causes and questions, but surely we can say, after all, though we have offended our king many times, yet our heart is loyal to him. O oh, thou precious Jesus, we would obey thee and yield submission to every one of thy laws. But though we fall, we can truly say that we would be holy as thou art holy. Our heart is true towards thy statutes. Lord, help us to run in the way of thy commandments. So you see, this mercy which God the Father hath given to us, the second of these present mercies, is that he hath translated us out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. This is the Father's work. Shall we not love God the Father from this day forth? Will we not give him thanks and sing our hymns to him and exalt and triumph in his great name? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise that you have made us who believe fit for an inheritance with the saints in light. You have not made us able to go on our own, but you have made us fit for heaven through your mercy and grace, through the obedience offered you by your son in his perfect life and through his death and resurrection. And you have translated us. You've delivered us out of the domain of darkness, the incalculable, horrible darkness of sin. And you've delivered us, transferred us into the kingdom of your dear son. Hallelujah. God, our father, we thank you. And we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.